there. Welcome to You Love to See It, Fanbytes Movie Review Podcast. Every month, we pick a theme. Every week, we watch a movie. And then we decide where its VHS tape belongs in our delightful neighborhood video store. We'll judge if it's got enough star power and upswing momentum to leave its handprint in the pavement of our distinguished staff pick shelf. If it's more than a brother, but less than a wife, and therefore settles in nicely within our totally fine middle aisle, or if it's nothing but a charismatic narcissist with a failed music career and delusions of grandeur, and therefore shall be sent straight into the dumpster, where it's always kind of damp, and the only song you're allowed to listen to is Happy by Pharrell. Working the counter today, we have yours truly, Fernanda, Rick, it's a flamethrower, Prachis, and my much fitter and more resourceful stunt double, Danielle, how they do this to Bruce Lee Riondo. Hi, Danielle. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Still, I'm, I'm, I like your nickname because it's very, very specific. <laughs> to- it, is, it is pretty specific <laughs> to this, this week's classic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to go with Don't Cry in Front of the Mexicans, but then I was like, ah, uh, for the first time listeners, they might not know I'm actually married to a Mexican. I live in Mexico. So it's like, it's a lot of explaining to yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, but it is a, a very good line that my Mexican <laughs> husband actually loves and encouraged me to use. Uh, yeah. We'll get into all that. First, though, we got to introduce this month's theme because we're getting we're getting into some new territory here. For the next four weeks, we kindly request that you, our dear listener, relinquish your current belief system on behalf of our fresher, superior ideology. We ask that you give up on your individuality and basic human needs for the sake of fulfilling our higher level collective vision. We ask that you cut off the negative influences who are not yet enlightened enough to understand the power of our teachings and follow us, your kind, generous leaders. In a month, we have been divinely inspired to call Join Us June. In other (laughs) words, let's talk about cults, baby. And we're kicking things off (laughs) with a particularly infamous cult that is portrayed in 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. (laughs) All the shooting. (laughs) I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Oh, you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Has been. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. In this town, I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. 
So we're about to fly into our first segment, setting the scene where we introduce the movie at hand and have a little spoiler-free chat about our history with it. But first, to those unfamiliar with the story, here's a brief summary of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a movie about a has-been actor, his never-was stunt double, a would-have-been actress, and a bunch of other people played by a frankly astounding big-name cast. It's a tale of stardom. It's a tale of friendship. And to a lesser extent, it's a tale of what happens when a petty criminal with mediocre musical talent decides to recruit a bunch of young women to do some pretty horrible shit. And what could have happened had shirtless Brad Pitt been there at the time. But we'll get into all of that in due time, because first, as we said, we're going to dive into the setting the scene segment, spoiler free, as a reminder, and discuss our background with the movie. And I will ask, of course, my wonderful co-host, Danielle, what is your history with this particular movie? But also, since we're kicking off Join Us Jews, again, a uh, a month where we discuss cults, uh, what is your history with cults? in general, as a thing, (laughs) as a concept. (laughs) Yeah, so I had never seen this movie before, but I want to relay a very cute and funny story. I was at, I was at a family, like, brunch this weekend. I I spent the weekend with my family. We had a long weekend in the U.S., and I spent time with the old fam, and they were talking about how much they loved this movie, how much all of them loved this movie so much, it was like being in a call, and I was like, okay, well, I guess we're gonna, we gotta watch this movie, and so I was delighted that we chose this one, uh, because my family had talked it up so much. I also have, like, I, I wouldn't say I have, like, a long history with cults, but I certainly have consumed a lot of media related to specifically, I guess, the Manson cult, which Mm -hmm. is touched on in this movie for sure. I did read the book from uh, the young woman who was known as Snake in the in the crew, Mm -hmm. in the cult, Uh, her like biography where she really goes in on. uh, I'm just going to say content warning here, just big old content warning for like like all of it, but (laughs) violent violence and sexual abuse, I suppose, you know, top of line. Here, but like she really goes in on like everything that happened and she was one of the youngest I think members of the cult she did not do one of the murders but she was like obviously privy to details about it and things like that mm-hmm. so really creepy shit it's it's one of those things that like I think there's just a fascination with this sort of thing because yeah this actually really did happen and yeah. these young women really were you know, kind of brainwashed and did some really fucked up shit and a lot of fucked up shit happened to them, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like very, very, very familiar with that. I also just saw uh, a really cool series on Shudder called Cursed Films that goes into like- Oh yeah, I'm so curious to watch this. It's really, really good. And, you know, the thesis of it is like, oh, we're looking at all these horrible things that happen to people who- you know, we're on certain productions. There's Mm -hmm. movies that people are like, oh my God, it's cursed. And especially if it's like a horror movie, people are like, it's cursed because of Mm -hmm. evil. Yeah. Um, And really the thesis is like, no, a lot of bad things happen to people. Life is random and terrible. And we like to attribute curses because at least then it makes sense of something in the universe. That's like the thesis of the whole thing. Okay. Uh, But there's a really good Rosemary's Baby episode, which talks a little bit about 
I guess a, just a whole content warning for Roman Polanski in general, but like talking about that movie and Roman, who is obviously in this movie, you know, a you know, fictional movie, uh, but Rosemary's Baby, Sharon Tate, uh, and actually an actress who was a very good friend of Sharon Tate's, who's in Rosemary's Baby, who like was so traumatized even just by her friend being killed that her life is fucked up. So all of this is to say, this is a very long story. I had no history with this movie especially, but know plenty about what it's kind of playing with, right? Mm. So was very interested in diving into it. So long story short, I do want to hear about your history with this movie and with this theme. Join us June and cults and all this good stuff. Yeah, so the movie I had watched once before, and I, it's very strange. I had no recollection of it. Like, I had vague like sort of ideas of specific scenes but very loose and I have no idea why because I revisited it and I was like okay was I alone yes I watched the movie (laughs) alone I was sober I purchased it so I had actual motivation to pay attention to it and somehow it was completely erased from my brain so I was a little scared I was like did my brain erase it to protect me from it. Because I remember thinking it was fun. But uh, <laughs> then we watched it, obviously, yesterday to do the show. And I don't know why I forgot <laughs> a glitch <laughs> in the Matrix. In the multiverse, maybe something happened and my uh, several selves got confused. Um, so that's it's a very short history with it. I, rem- I, I figured you hadn't watched it. Because if I'm not mistaken, when we did the uh, Inglorious Bastards episode, you did tell us you had never seen an actual Tarantino movie, right? Or am I tripping here? Oh, no. I, I've seen plenty of Tarantino movies. Oh, okay. But I, oh, I think then. I said that, like, oh, I'm missing several. Like, okay. I am. Like, I've seen all the kind of the 90s ones. Like Pulp and, Fiction yeah, I think, and I think Jackie Dogs. Brown is a masterpiece, you know, oh, okay, things okay. like that. And I was. But no, no, you're not. You're not, though, because I am absolutely, especially for like a, you know, whatever person who went to film school. I always like say that like under my breath. Like, I know it's a bad, it's like a bad word almost. Like, <laughs> film school student, like, just are, am definitely missing some of the pieces. So I, okay. you're not crazy at all. I just, okay. you know. Just mildly, <laughs> mildly crazy. Just 32 and forgetting things. We were, t- <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about this before recording. How so many things after you turn 30 can just be attributed to being over 30. I've, been, I've heard that you're just over 30 from doctors several times over the past uh, six months. And it's it's not pleasant. But I digress. The, yeah, so that was my thing with it. And Colts. I was the one who actually suggested the month because I've discussed sort of my basic bitchness uh, on this show before. (laughs) I do have my YouTube algorithm won't let me lie. Uh, My Spotify automatic playlist won't let me lie. I have several basic bitch tastes. And one of them, of course, is cults. Um, Like true crime and cults kind of, to me, go inside that sort of bag And it's just, I just love listening to stuff about it, reading about it, just making myself feel sad about the stories. Like right now I'm reading um, John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven, which is about the fundamentalist church of Latter-day Saints, which uh, fucking sucks. And yes, it's a cult. And listening (laughs) to a book from a girl... A uh, woman, actually, who, as a girl, was raised there and escaped. 
I'm doing that simultaneously. Um, wow. Yeah, not not something I would recommend. It's a lot of sadness and horrible things. But yeah, so that's it's really my jam. And um, but I kind of stay away from the the most famous cults because <laughs> I'm, I'm an indie basic bitch. So I. <laughs> I don't actually know that much about the Manson cult, though I did read half of Jeff Gwynn's uh, Manson book, mm. uh, the same guy who wrote the Jonestown book, which I also read halfway because these are both very big books. OK, they are huge. <laughs> They're huge, 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 but uh, also very good. He's a really an outstanding, outstanding writer. But yeah, so my my knowledge of the Minson cult specifically and the Minson uh, girls, as they're referred to, a more adequately Minson uh, women um, at this point, uh, is not that extensive. But I just think it's fitting that we went with this movie to kick off the month because it really is one of the most famous. Like when we say cults, I think people's minds automatically go to like. Jonestown and yeah. Minson, like basically, yeah. or Children of God or uh, Heaven's Gate. But again, I digress. <laughs> yeah, so that's my history. That's our history with it. I like that you're coming in fresh and I'm coming in almost fresh because I didn't remember yeah. a single thing. So <laughs> it almost, brainwashing goes both ways. <laughs> it goes both ways. So it almost felt like watching it, uh, watching it for the first time. Uh, so I guess that means we get to move on into our next little, uh, little segment of our show, which as you guys, as our beautiful followers, I mean, listeners, you already know, uh, it's called stripping it down. And it's a section that we must warn you does contain, uh, specific details about the plot and about characters, otherwise known as spoilers. So if you <laughs> haven't watched the movie and you don't want to hear spoilers, Maybe don't listen to the segment. Or do. We're not going to tell you what to do with your lives. <laughs> oh, hey there. Just wanted to take a moment to shout out one of the other shows on our network, Thanks for the Knowledge, which is fanbite's by its weekly news roundup for the world of games and entertainment. Each week, our very own John Warren rounds up the biggest headlines from the week so you can stay up to date with everything going on in the world of video games, movies, TV, and much more. Plus, John is joined by Fanbyte staff members and our friends from around the industry to talk about things like the latest Pokemon news, that Halo TV show, Playdate, the latest Bethesda delays, and tons more. You'll also get a look at the week ahead so you know what to put on your radar. Thanks for the knowledge is available on this very app you're using right now. And we've even included a link in our show notes so you can add this week's episode to your queue. Find the rest of the Fanbyte podcasts over at fanbyte.com slash podcasts. Okay, back to the show. cover here there is yeah there's a lot to cover here uh but i kind of wanted to go something that you put on your nose right away um and that's something that we 
kind of hard to get away from when we talk about Tarantino movies, and that is sort of the style, uh, you know, the the, the style choices and the sort of the, the what you call the filmmaking tricks, uh, which yeah. are here in full force uh, in this in enormously long movie. It's two hours <laughs> yeah. and 41 freaking minutes. Um, I feel like we're cursing ourselves because we keep talking about how we don't like long movies and we have been watching movies that are over two I know, hours, two it's hours. awful. <laughs> but yeah, so I kind of wanted to see your, your thoughts of it as somebody who watched it for the first time. Like, how did you feel about the the vibes, the visual vibes? Yeah, I really, really loved, especially... Um, I think this movie is best when it's doing like a it's sort of love letter to actual movies kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously Hollywood is a brutal and miserable place. And I think this movie does acknowledge that in a lot of ways, certainly. Um, but my favorite parts of it really are things like the sort of prestige Western in the middle of yeah. it. And I really, really enjoy like the promo at the beginning that is like, you know, it's black and white. It's, uh, you know, three by four. <laughs> I might get the aspect ratio wrong. And I'm sure Paul, also a film school person, will will tell me. But the sort of like, you know, old style TV, like promos and things uh, with the Rick Dalton character. And there's even some really fun little kind of editing glitches and tricks that they do that are just kind of fun. And I know it's it's there for people who love this kind of shit. And I understand. And I I know that makes me the worst. But it's also very fun because there are things like you know, little weird cuts, uh, especially when like Rick Dalton is talking to the uh, the Timothy Oliphant character. I don't even know who he's playing in the the movie within the movie. I guess he's like the hero of the movie within the movie, the the sort of Western in the middle of the movie. He's uh, there are just he all these weird in, cuts. Yeah, yeah, he existed in real life. His character. Yeah, he's like you know, it's like he's doing Deadwood, and then it's you know doing all this this kind of funny stuff. And you know, there's like shots where. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is like eating a chicken wing and there are shots where it's just not even there. It's just like they're just playing with like stupid continuity yet it's also like honestly framed and staged like a modern prestige TV show. Like it's very smooth. It's very nicely put together. It's extremely like oh it's tense in the scenes where he's a bad guy and things like Mm -hmm. that. So there's just all this stuff. There's also so many scenes where people are driving and it could be the most annoying thing in the world. And like, I won't blame anyone for finding it very annoying, but a lot of times it's actually pretty compelling because of how beautiful the scenery is and yeah. how like well put together everything appears to be like, Oh, they really did go for like, they somehow made it look like 60s Hollywood. I know this is like a, you know, this is a quote um, somewhere about how, you know, the idea was to go for making it look like 60s Hollywood without doing any CG or anything like that. So it's all kind of mm-hmm. like in camera trickery and, all kinds of stuff like that. Which we've established is way cooler than CGI stuff. Yeah, it really just kind of always looks better. Unless you're all CGI. In that case, that's great. And the world can look very consistent. But it just creates an inconsistency that makes me sad. And that's all. Uh, but yeah, I, that stuff, the visuals are really, really fun. And the playfulness with editing, it's really, really fun for me. And of course, I know, again, this is like made for people like me in that case. But it is very effective and it is very, very fun to kind of like spot it and play with mm-hmm. it and see what's going on. Yeah, to me, it was interesting because like what you're saying, uh, Timothy Oliphant, who, by the way, if he did something shitty, don't tell me. I love this man. <laughs> Let me hold on to Timothy Oliphant. Uh, oh, Drigo actually uh, like met him once at a museum in New York 
and like went up and talked to him and says he was oh really God. nice. So oh, let's let's end tall, surprisingly tall. So let's hold on <laughs> to this memory of Timothy Oliphant and not Google too much because I don't want it. We already have Emil Hirsch in this movie. Like there's, let me keep Timothy Oliphant, but he plays uh, Jim, uh, James Stacy, who was the star of Lancer. And I don't know who these people are. I don't know any. That's the thing to me watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, yeah. I have no knowledge of old Hollywood. I don't know L.A. I don't know anything about it. So I didn't know what was true, what wasn't. I couldn't really appreciate the cameos of real life people in a way that I'm sure other people have. But um, it's still... It didn't ruin the movie for me at all. Like to me, it was still interesting. And then I watched a couple of videos like watch Mojo top 10, <laughs> like top 10 <laughs> facts and fiction in the Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, God. Yeah, there's an excessive, embarrassing amount of watch Mojo in my YouTube um history i'm not proud that's of okay. I'm, again that's no, we've established. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not proud of anything i've left clear instructions with my loved ones that upon my death my internet history shall be cleansed not because there's anything awful in there having awful things would be cool it's because everything is so painfully generic but yeah so timothy elephant <laughs> plays james stacy and luke perry rest in peace luke perry i'm I think this might have been his last, one of his last yeah. roles. Yeah. Um, plays his partner who was also a real life uh, person. So it was interesting, like as an exercise after the movie to kind of dig into the actual references, but I'm sure like a person who actually understands them um, might have enjoyed it even more. But again, I don't think it feels like a movie that is this long, even though there is a lot packed into it. Um, as we were saying, and this is the theme of the month, like we have these different storylines, right? The main storyline is Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Um, uh, Leo DiCaprio is this actor who was really big in 50s Westerns, um, who is kind of adjusting to this new scenario in Hollywood. It's a transitional phase of his career. Like he's being relegated to the... Um, uh, heel roles and the the heavies, as he says, and yeah. slowly kind of slipping into like kind of fulfilling the natural trajectory of Hollywood, which to me is kind of interesting because neither uh, DiCaprio nor Brad Pitt uh, fell into that. They're both right. like people who have had really long careers, who have like been very steady Um but yeah, he plays Rick Dalton and then Brad Pitt plays his uh, stunt double, um, who Cliff Booth, who we want to like until we casually find out he murdered his wife. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. For yeah. being for the crime of being an egg. Um, right. So <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> And that's my thing. And that's a uh, part of, so we have that. And then obviously the other storyline, as we were saying, the Manson cult uh, with um, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. Uh, Manson himself makes a very quick appearance. Uh, and we have the guy who's going to play Elvis in the movie. I forgot his name. Austin something, playing Tex, <laughs> who was kind of like uh, Charles Manson's, uh, one of his brutal... Lieutenants, sidekick dudes I yes guess, yeah. lieutenants that's a good word for it 
and obviously the the Manson girls. Um, so it's a lot <laughs> in a single uh, yeah. movie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because though these things obviously intersect and spoiler alert, um, the Manson people don't kill anyone in the end, right? That we were talking about the, that it's, you know, literally reimagined Nazism in, uh, in Glorious Bastards. And in this yeah. case, he kind of reimagines the, the Manson murders, uh, Manson, uh, the, the Tate LaBianca murders with a happy ending. I don't know. There is. Kind there are women suffering very excruciating deaths, so yeah. we'll get into all that. But yeah, so it's 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 a lot and a lot of ground to cover. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about: yeah. this movie came out in 2019, which was kind of like very fresh uh, for Me Too. It was a very fresh Me Too moment, right? And mm -hmm. there were, mm -hmm. I think, a lot of questions. There are two main, I think, points of discussion in this movie, and we'll get to both of them. One you mentioned in your nickname, Bruce Lee, but also the yeah. portrayal of Sherry Tate by Margot Robbie. Yeah. And I have some thoughts on it, but uh, I first wanted to ask you, like, how did you feel about the Sharon Tate character and obviously uh, the choices, both the directing choices, but also Margot Robbie's acting choices with her? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of, I, I was a little bit of two minds here and it's more, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm more of two minds about the ending itself than I mm -hmm. am about the performance. I think the performance is actually really great. Mm. Uh, I think she does a wonderful job being both like a really beautiful effervescent actress. And she is like swinging sixties. She's dancing in almost every scene. She's obviously like super, super gorgeous in the traditional feminine way, et cetera, et cetera. But it also in the movie, it does a good job to humanize her. Like she's annoyed about being pregnant and hot on the hottest day of the year. She snores when she's asleep, yeah. like as does, uh, Rick Dalton's like hot Italian wife on the airplane back, like women snoring as they sleep, like unbelievably hot women <laughs> snoring as they sleep is like a motif in this movie that like keeps coming back. And it's really funny to me because it's like, this is somebody's fucking fetish, but also it's just funny. She also has very dirty like, feet. Yeah, Sharon like, Day. they both show dirty feet, like, it, or not her, that it's the, uh, it's the other young woman who's in the cult who shows dirty feet. So it's like, it is no, a humanizing element. If you go yeah, back to the Sharon movie, does scene. In the movie, yeah, she does in the movie, and it's like kind of cute. And also the fact that like she goes to see her own movie, and she's delighted when people laugh. She's delighted when people are like feeling it when she does like a kung fu thing. She's so delighted in in a way that's like very humanizing. Of fucking course, if I was in a movie ever in my life. I would go to the goddamn movie and be like, that's me in the movie. <laughs> I would too. And like, she's like playing like this klutzy, funny person in the movie, which is also yeah. like delightful. So yeah, I think it does a great job capturing like the, the liveliness of this person and the effervescence of this person, this like really, really kind of delightful portrait of her while also making her seem like, oh, a real person who has real genuine annoyances and like maybe a slightly gross habit of taking your shoes off at the movie theater, you know, like just a little bit of that kind of humanizing characteristic. So the, I feel like that performance is one of my favorite in the movie. Like I think sh her performance and Leo as Rick Dalton are both like really, really good performances, like really grounded, you know, human beings who have suffered on some level, potentially she doesn't suffer much. And that is also kind of, 
something to have opinions about because it's like, okay, the real life woman really did suffer and that really sucks. And that's really sad and upsetting, but also this movie because of its ending allows her to live yeah, and allows her to have a very, at least happy for her happy ending where she like, whatever has her baby and stays in Hollywood and gets to do whatever the fuck she wants to do basically. Right. So I'm of two minds about the ending itself because it does take away it's it, on one hand, it's beautiful, like to think, like, yeah, what if this effervescent, really cool, nice human being who really lived could have lived and had a long life and and had a nice time, you know, and not yeah. suffered and was not killed by an absolutely banana pan situation. On the other hand, it also does take away some of the like and some of the danger of what really happened here and some of the suffering of what really happened. Like this cult did really horrific damage. And by having this happy ending, you know, on one hand, it's wonderful because it's like, oh, it's a happy ending. This woman didn't die. On the other hand, it's like, oh, so you're just kind of saying this is like a silly, stupid thing and, and not like a horrible, dangerous thing that really did happen. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, though, right? Like, and and I was also like conflicted about the portrayal of Sharon Tate sure. because as usually happens when people are victims of a spectacular crime. And when I say spectacular, I don't mean yes. obviously a fun crime, um, which like stealing from the rich, fun crime. No, yeah, I mean exactly. like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean crime as in, uh, as in spectacular, as in made into spectacles. Yes. Uh, yes. Is that the story about a person's life is actually the story of this person's death. And, you know, few people exemplify that more than Sharon Tate, because obviously it's one of the most famous murders in history. And you can't say Sharon Tate's name without automatically thinking about uh, Marilyn Manson. Look at me. Well, Marilyn Manson is another criminal predator, (laughs) but that's a subject for another... Uh, freaking podcast, uh, but <laughs> yep. Charles Manson, um, and and that's perverse in its own way, right? Like you are victimized yeah. by this person, and then you get to live in the afterlife, as far as people are concerned, as in this perpetual sort of state of victimhood, and that's particularly cruel. So I was happy that this was like, okay, Sharon Tate is a fully realized character in this movie, while. Uh, Charles Manson, he's mentioned, he's a presence, uh, but we barely see him. Sharon is the character. And like you said, we get to see her do mundane things. We just get to see her living the life. I read some some things, and I know that there was a criticism at the time. Uh, There's a specific piece on Esquire called Sharon Tate Never Wanted to Be an Object. That's exactly what happened in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, by Mm. Adrienne Westenfeld, in which she kind of goes into sort of the portrayal of women along the movie. And it's a worthy read with a lot of very good points, but it's long. So if you want to go and check it out yourselves. But that it, it does make a point, right, that... She's shown, again, as a sexy, pretty thing. She doesn't really have a lot of lines. Uh, She was against Sharon Tate, the person, instead of this. She spoke up against sort of being objectified and treated as, as, you know, just a a little beautiful plaything. But 
that's kind of what happens in the movie because she's not as fully realized or as layered or, you know, as, as she doesn't have as much personality or as much of a storyline, you would say, you could say as, as Cliff and, 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 and Rick. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. um, I read another thing, uh, a very quick thing on empire that did really get me thinking like kind of a counterpoint about sort of how this too, can be an interesting thing with a person who had an arch uh, like like Sharon Tate. And I would like to read from it uh, just a brief little segment. And I quote, In a world where Sharon Tate doesn't die on August 8, 1969, it's a day that's completely inconsequential in Tate's life. Over mm-hmm. the six-month time span of the movie, we see her on any number of completely ordinary days. She isn't working. She's home alone and not doing much. She's dancing. She knocks around Hollywood a bit, does some shopping, meets up with friends, huffs about pregnancy, goes to a screening of the Wrecking Crew and is pleased by the audience reaction. On the evening of August 8th, there's some trouble next door that she's involved with. If Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about Sharon Tate in any sense, it's about giving her that life back and studiously not fixating on her death. To some extent, it's actually about leaving her alone. And that's true. And it talks about how her sister, Deborah, approved and endorsed uh, Robbie and and the film as a whole. So to me, that's kind of the richness of it, right? Like the uneventfulness of Sharon Tate in this movie is in itself, I think, a good choice considering somebody whose death and consequently life became so attached to just something so spectacular. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely appreciate that. Yeah. And, and it does feel like a performance that feels like considered mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And again, it is very light. There's, there's a light touch on the performance, I would say. There's a lot of dancing, <laughs> right? It's a lot yeah. of dancing and, and her being seemingly pretty happy. Although it does, you know, there is narration about like she was, you know, had some melancholy. She's, you know, feeling, you know, gross and pregnant and very warm at one point. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's, again, pretty humanizing, pretty grounding kind of things. But it does feel like, oh, mm-hmm. respect was paid to this, which, mm-hmm. you know, if we if we want to segue at any point, yeah, the opposite happens. <laughs> the opposite say. happens for another famous historical figure. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a caricature of exactly. like what happened uh, to, to another uh, real life character who was portrayed in the movie. And I have some thoughts on it, but let's get into it with you first, Danielle, as we were... Uh, you alluded to in your nickname, Bruce Lee uh, is portrayed in this movie, which is not random. Bruce Lee actually taught a bunch of like Hollywood people, including Sharon Tate herself, according to sources. Uh, uh, he apparently helped her prepare for The Wrecking Crew, which is a movie that she goes to watch uh, uh, in the theater yeah. and exposes her feet. And I've heard that I've read somewhere that Tarantino has a foot fetish and that's why he keeps putting his Wouldn't women shock in. me. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's, again, a whole other thing uh, that we can discuss. <laughs> But (laughs) haven't confirmed that information. Uh, But yeah, so Bruce Lee has a brief but very uh, consequential appearance because it was one of the main things I think that got uh, discussed around the time that the movie was released. And um, Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon Lee, had some thoughts on it. Uh, Tarantino went on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast i don't it it, it pains me whenever i i have to say (laughs) this out loud to talk about it uh 
Yeah, there was a lot of discourse around this particular yeah. appearance. And I wanted to hear your thoughts. How did you feel about Bruce Lee's portrayal in the movie? Yeah, I mean, it's just... I think it sucks a lot, to be honest, like, on the on the overall. And I sort of... I, I, I also am, like, sympathetic to something that you had said before we started recording, which is, like, I'm fine with him not being portrayed as some kind of saint or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like, he... he you know, he was a flawed human being for sure. But there's just this scene and it's a flashback and it's from the Green Hornet, which was a TV show he actually was on. He was Cato mm-hmm. on the Green Hornet. Um, and it's this flashback where he's kind of running his mouth about what a great martial artist he is and great, you know, like, oh, I can't I can't fully, you know, do full combat in a tournament and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, Cliff the Mr. Mr. Cool Macho Badass who also killed his fucking wife. Again, <laughs> problematic. A problematic man. A very problematic man. He contains kind of multitudes. Laughs. We'll give you him know, that. He contains multitudes, you know? He contains <laughs> multitudes. Very attached to guy. his beautiful female pit bull. Killed his oh, own wife, apparently, yeah. which is very loosely discussed. But yeah. Yeah. And like, just as the aside, like that that scene where we get a flashback to him killing his wife is like some dark shit because yep. it's like, she's basically just like complaining about him and, and whining and nagging. And it makes him seem like the sane person for killing her. And it's like, this is a little fucked up y'all. That's a little fucked up. You shouldn't kill someone for complaining. Even if they're annoying you, <laughs> not a great thing to do. No, usually there are other situation. ways around annoyance that I feel like are more, Uh, appropriate to life in a civilized society as a general concept but exactly like you know you could you could talk and communicate everybody Mm -hmm. needs therapy okay divorce something i say divorce adele would say divorce babes see another basic (laughs) another basic bitchness uh of mine is quoting adele uh, I, too, yeah. contain multitudes. No, I'm continue. so glad that you do. I'm so glad that you do. You always bring a richness to this podcast that I could not. I could not. I, you know? I bring you news from the world of the heteros, Danielle. I, exactly. I'm I'm so gay, and I live in Bushwick, where I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know what happens in the world. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but anyway, sorry. In this scene, basically, Cliff is, like, laughing at him, like, oh, I could kick your ass. And he does. Like, there's this whole, like, trickery to it and all sorts of things. And, yes, I saw the Rogan clip where Quentin thinks he's making this hilarious thing about his great character, Cliff, uh, and showing what a cool guy Cliff is, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, none of this explains why you think Bruce Lee is, like, a useless asshole. Like, it's just, that's it. It's just, like, a very mocking caricature. And, like, Cliff is, like, making fun of Bruce's, like, you know, trademark kind of vocalizations as he's like doing his martial arts and all this stuff. And it's just like, it honestly just comes across as a little racist and a little like tone deaf and a little like, yeah, okay. The the big white guy who kills people can kick the ass of the other guy. It just reads like shit, to be honest. And there, it just doesn't feel like there's a point to it at all. It's like, do you hate Bruce Lee? Again, a flawed man. I think we can all say everyone has flaws. He's not like a perfect saint who did nothing wrong ever. But like my guy maybe deserved a little bit more reverence than this when other people in this movie are kind of treated with reverence. Like Steve McQueen shows up, you know, Jay Sebring shows up, like all these other, you know, historic figures, these other actors who are real people 
they're treated with like a respect. I'm not saying like, oh, everything has to be deferential and like everybody needs to be worshipped or anything of the sort. Just this is the one person who's like fully just mocked, like just made fun of, just laid out on their ass. And that's it. There's nothing else to that character. And it's also the only person of color who has more than a couple of lines in the entire movie. So it just feels like, y'all, like, really? The optics are weird. That, that's the thing, right? Like, I, I, again, we talked about this offline for a bit, but that was just kind of like, initially, I, I kind of liked seeing this different version of Bruce Lee because he has been sort of immortalized in our public consciousness as sure. this like really incredibly noble, superior fi- like figure of just like nobility and wisdom when <laughs> sure. he was not. He was a famous dude who had the negative traits <laughs> that a lot of yeah. not just famous dudes, but just like, right, famous people have. And of course, his daughter would be upset by not seeing. And I, I kind of wanted to be like, ah, of course, his daughter doesn't like it. Like she's used to seeing his dad being treated like just idolized by pop culture in all these sure. years. And by the way, I'm a massive Bruce Lee fan, but like, yeah. So you you won't like anything that isn't necessarily complimentary. And I remember watching the movie for the first time and thinking that's the thing. I don't remember a lot. I just remember I knew about the sort of controversy and think, oh, I thought it was like a funny, a funny caricature. Uh, nothing necessarily wrong with that. Like, obviously, this isn't who Bruce Lee was, right? Like, obviously, for people watching this movie, they will understand that this was a rereading of this character, Bruce Lee. And also, it's told in the form of a cliff uh, flashback. So you can also interpret it as, as, this is not objective, right? This is not a picture of reality. This is Cliff remembering this moment and attributing his own like traits to this character. And it probably reflects a lot of the racism and, you know, just the the stereotypes that were present in Hollywood at the time. And that Cliff probably had himself. So that's a generous read of it. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) and then I I kind of uh, read a little more and thought about it a little more. And yes, like this is a movie where a lot of white real life people who were portrayed get a sort of uh, reverential treatment. People like uh, Steve McQueen, obviously Sharon Tate herself. But, uh, and then you have the one character of color, um, the one person of color being reduced to this like very uh, ridiculous little portrait. Um, And, you know, his biographer, Matthew Polly, talked about, you know, like how he was, there's a story on the rap with um, Shannon Tate, uh, Shannon Tate, Shannon Lee uh, talking Mm. about sort of her feelings on, on uh, the portrayal of her dad. And she does make a lot of excellent points. And again, as, the man's daughter, you can absolutely understand sure. uh, yeah. why she would be upset. And then in the story, um, for instance, she says in this quote, I can understand all the reasoning behind what is portrayed in the movie, she said. I understand that the two characters are anti-heroes, and this is sort of like a rage fantasy of what would happen. And they're portraying a period of time that clearly had a lot of racism and exclusion. So she understands there's context to this, right? This yeah. isn't just some yeah. person being angry. Oh, they're not treating my dad as a hero. Like, right. um, 
And then she said, I understand they wanted to make the Brad Pitt character the super badass who could beat up Bruce Lee, but they didn't need to treat him in the way that white Hollywood did when he was alive. And that was like, that hit hard. It was like, oh, oh. And even uh, Matthew Polly, his biography says, so like he was, um, he came across, he really did as this, like, uh, he said, Bruce Lee was often a cocky, strutting braggart, but Tarantino <laughs> took those traits and exaggerated them to the point of an SNL caricature, which again, might not even be such a horrible thing in a movie where the other characters were sort of given the same treatment. Exactly. Right. If Steve McQueen was just the same like, falling all over himself or whatever, <laughs> you know, like the same like level, then yeah, I get that. Like, okay, you're doing that same thing. It's it's kind of the difference here that's making it shitty or feel yeah. shitty. You yeah, know? even like Jay, the uh Sharon Tate's ex, the who was also a real life person who was killed in the murders, like, yeah, he's portrayed yeah. as this kind of like goofy kind of loser who's just trailing Sharon the entire time. Um but you know, nothing was this. He didn't get to be, Bruce Lee didn't get to be a fully realized character at any other point. So him just being there in this moment and just being this, I, it, the, again, the optics just yeah. aren't amazing. <laughs> so it's also like a little harsh because just knowing anything about Green Hornet, like he had to really fight to have a lot of lines. Exactly. Even. On that show. And they just treat mm-hmm. it as if, like, he is the superstar. Mm-hmm. Oh, he don't beat up the star. And it's like, he wasn't actually treated all that well on his own show. Like, to be to be clear, like, because of racism. Because of Hollywood racism. Yeah. So it's, even doing that is like, again, I, I know and I understand this is a fucking flashback from Cliff. But it's not like... <laughs> Cliff is very clearly, if we're seeing flashbacks from Cliff, we're clearly prioritizing his point of view. Right. Yeah. Like that's saying, oh, you know what's important in this fucking two hours and 41 minutes of movie? You know what's important enough? His point of view to do yeah. flashbacks. Not, not, you know, Bruce Lee's point of view. Right. And it's like, all right. So, like, even if you want to argue that part of like, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a little tainted from his point of view, et cetera, et cetera. It's also like, yeah, but you're not showing other people's points of view. So, yeah. You know, what are you saying here? That this guy who killed his wife is the coolest guy in the universe and he does nothing wrong? Because that's kind of what the movie is like. Exactly. Saying at times. And that's maybe fucked. So there's that. And there's a lot of Brad Pitt's own, like, talent that weighs into it, right? Like, Sure. He's just such a freaking spectacular actor. Who, by the way, I think he's just one of those people who decided to be hot forever. Like, I think so too. He's yeah. just yep. made this conscious decision in his life, and it's like that's just what's gonna happen. Brad Pitt will forever be hot and just have to uh, accept it. Uh, but yeah, so he he plays Cliff, and Cliff is written in a way that you sympathize with him. But something I read, and I I can't really remember where I read a lot of shit about uh, this movie from yesterday yeah, for to sure. today, yeah. but. Um, you know, that there is something icky about the fact that in the end, I think that might have been on the uh, Esquire piece that sort of discussed the problematic elements of how women are portrayed in the movie. But like you have Brad Pitt, this guy who's the killing of his wife is a throwaway thing that is kind of left open. Right. Because we don't see him killing his wife. Uh, it's just kind of like a thing that people 
know happened and he doesn't deny it apparently but we we have that that be a very quick throwaway aspect that is not touched on again in a very long movie so there, there would have been time yeah, to address yep. this had there been the desire and we get to see him in the end bashing the face of this woman who yeah. obviously in real life ended up being a murderer and I'll, I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit because there's a lot of complexity whenever we talk about, uh, you know, Manson and, and and the women who carried out sort of his nefarious uh, uh, crimes. But there is something so weird and kind of icky uh, that the first time I saw the movie, I just remember not really having that in my mind. I didn't really remember the scene. I didn't remember how brutal it was, but I just didn't. I, I, I remember thinking, oh, that's cool. Like Sharon Tate doesn't die at the end of this because I hadn't yeah. read it. So I didn't know. So yeah. <laughs> I yeah. didn't know that she, she didn't know. Yeah. That's a nice surprise. Sharon Tate is still alive. Cool. Um, <laughs> but that didn't really come, you know, didn't really think about this. But then this time, like, we have this guy who probably killed his wife and this woman who was a victim in her own right because she was a victim of, of, of Charles Manson. And you have him destroying her face and we're, like, gleefully watching all of this. There's a, an element of strangeness in that when you really think about it. Yeah. And, you know, it's a testament to, again, how good the character is because we end up being endeared to Cliff uh, because it's well-written and well-played. And then there's this nefarious thing that he literally fucking killed his wife because apparently yeah. she was annoying. It's... it's yeah. So I've, I'm left with all these, these yeah. thoughts. But one thing you wrote, before we get into it, because I do want to get into the uh, Manson sort of specific part of this, uh, yeah. but the Rick character, who yeah. is played by DiCaprio, right? He's the... The main character, he, you you wrote here in your notes that he ends up coming off as likable, uh, if deeply problematic. <laughs> and yeah. I agree with you because by the end of the movie, you're kind of like feeling a little sad for Rick. Like you get this very good portrait of the sort of lifespan of an actor and he has some very existential uh, moments and particularly in this scene with the little girl, which... Yeah. It's probably one of the richest, like, sort of texts uh, in the entire movie. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about it. Like, how did you feel about Rick's development? And why do you think that he he ended up coming across as, as a likable character in the end? Yeah, I mean, it, he's he feels very, very deeply human. He's mm. very flawed. He, he obviously yeah. has, you know, issues. issues. <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of issues. He's basically married to Cliff. Uh, which is very cute and funny. The way they talk about it is like more than a friend, but less than a wife. And it's like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, when yeah. Cliff picks him up and drives him places and fixes all the things in the house. They're kind of like domestic partners. It's kind of what's going on here. So like yeah. their bromance is the reason I don't hate Cliff. Because otherwise Cliff is an awful person who kills people and is racist against Bruce Lee. <laughs> like <laughs> basically, right? Like it's, it's it's kind of one of those, but they do have this beautiful relationship. And Rick is like a deeply feeling person. He cries when he reads a book. He cries when he when he sees himself in a, you know, in this uh, cowboy who is lose is feeling more useful or sorry, feeling more useless every day. 
Yeah. He sees his career fading. And he sees all the bad things kind of starting to happen. He still wants to live his lifestyle. He still wants his beautiful house. And he clearly does have an alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. And he has a lot of issues kind of going on. But he is this person who feels so deeply. And it's mm-hmm. what makes him probably a good actor. And like, yeah. there's this moment of, you know, it, this very Travis Bickle, like, tantrum moment where he's in his own little trailer and he's really upset about flubbing a line and doing poorly in the show. Um, and then the, there's this other segment in the, in the show within the show, the Lancer show, the Western where he does like a great job. He does like a great scene and everybody's so mm-hmm. proud of him. And the little girl that he has this beautiful scene with earlier kind of tells him that's the best acting I've ever seen. It's, it's like he has tears in his eyes. He's so yeah. happy. This is him at his best moment of his life. This is him being like, I'm fucking Dalton. You know, oh my God, he's so happy. And that one scene with, with him and the young actor, this very serious young woman actor. Yeah. is very so serious about her um, craft. Yeah, she's real serious about it. And it's, and it's both cute and also like really awesome. It's like, yeah, you know what? You do that, young lady. You do you. You know, like, absolutely. She really gets into character and she's really all about it. And he's having this crisis and and he can see it for her, too. And he's so upset about it. I've heard that she might be based on Jodie Foster, in which case she didn't have a horrible career ending turn when she turned 15 or whatever. (laughs) uh, True. No, sorry. It was in 15 years. So, like, in her... I don't know, 20s? She like, did have like, a really a rough beginning because as a reminder, Jodie Foster was playing a child prostitute uh, when she was like oh, 12. In, in Taxi Driver. In Taxi in Driver. In the same movie, you know, in the same movie with Travis Bickle. So she, I mean, she, one of the longest careers in all of Hollywood, I, I want to say. like Successfully, yeah, without like some major. Child yeah. to, to long. She's in her 60s now. It's still acting, still, I believe, working. Uh, but yeah, like, what a fucking character. And this is what works for me the most about this movie um, is is this sort of like people who really love their craft and they're really, really all about it. And they're really, really intense about it. And maybe the happiest days are gone, but you can still have that little spark of life left. Like something about that really kind of spoke to me. I thought that was really touching and, and kind of beautiful and Again, that's what makes Rick work for me. He's yeah. kind of a doofus in a lot of ways. Like, I don't... There is no attention paid to why he marries Francesca. He just kind of <laughs> marries her and brings her over. And he's just kind of like, and marries well, an Italian woman, because why not? <laughs> he's just like, brings her. And then that means he has to basically dump his boyfriend, which makes everybody sad. <laughs> Nobody's happy about him dumping his boyfriend. Like, no one... I don't think Francesca's happy about it. You know, like it's, yeah. She's a little bit of a doofus, a little bit of a problematic man. He doesn't like hippies. And it's real funny when they give him a hippie jacket. But anyway, he is like a deeply felt character. And that makes him very watchable and very interesting and uh, kind of the emotional core of the movie. Yeah, and the only time, I mean, he... Only murder he committed was during a very tense situation inside of his house. So we'll give him... That's better than throwing your wife off a boat. Um, oh, yeah. He, I mean... something. You can kind of argue it a couple yeah. of ways, but you could argue that that is, like, fairly legitimate self-defense. He was just chilling um, in his pool, dude. Drunk yeah. as a skunk. 
Like, <laughs> and like a woman kind of came at him with a knife. I mean, yeah, yeah, he I probably guess. could have just left her alone because she was already pretty fucked up. I mean, yeah. well, let's be honest. But, but there's an argument for self-defense. There, there is an argument for yeah. self-defense where it doesn't feel like, oh, somebody was nagging him and he killed her. Like yeah. this one's a little more, at least he doesn't seem like a monster. This yeah. way. He is. And like you said, I agree with you. Like he feels, and again, this is a testament to uh, Leo DiCaprio's acting. Like there's, you know, it's truly a fortune that he will only date children because, um, sorry, women under 25. It's a very upsetting aspect of DiCaprio's uh, personality because, well, it's still within legality. So let's, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know how to segue out of this. Um <laughs> Just like if you're a 40 year old dude, like 40 plus, you're dating women under 25, just like reassess some shit. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, Leo, if you're listening, just think about it. I know it. he does listen. He listens to our podcast. I, I'm pretty sure. Clearly. And it's like, why wouldn't he? And it's like, you Every know, day. just examine it. Why? What is the problem with women your age who probably have a better, you know, um, idea of, of, of their own limits and, you know, Stuff to discuss with your analyst at a later date, Leo, my dude. <laughs> yeah. uh, but an undeniably talented actor. And by the way, I had no recollection that the classic meme of him like staring at the TV was from this movie of him watching himself oh, yeah. on FBI. Um, Here I come. <laughs> exactly. Which is a great scene. I just hate Leo DiCaprio memes. I just feel like they're yeah. so overused. So, Yeah. Like the Drake, the Drake meme, I feel like made a comeback. Like now that, you know, I think we've cycled back into the time when the Drake meme is okay again, but not the DiCaprio meme. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But again, it, I, it, there's I, just so <laughs> much of it. There's too much. It's excessive. It really became, it became a thing for like people who want to be hip to laugh at. And I say this as somebody whose husband is very into Leo DiCaprio memes. And we've had this <laughs> conversation several times. But um, he's just very, like, amazing in this movie. Of course, to me, he's obviously one of, not to me, to literally everyone. This is not a very fringe opinion that he's one of the <laughs> most talented actors of our time. And it really shows in this kind of, like, pathetic sort of character that you end up getting very endeared to and who gets his own happy ending right after the whole traumatic yes. situation in his household he finally gets yes. the invite he saves indirectly kind of Sharon Tate and gets the invite to go um into her house and 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 who knows maybe get his Hollywood uh resurgence uh at that but I agree yeah. with you I just think he ended up being improbably sort of the 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 heart of the movie along with Sharon Tate I guess in a different lighter way right because he really yeah. does personify the whole story the whole arch of this you know there's an existential layer to him that I find very interesting that it's dealing with Hollywood and the specific sort of trappings of fame but I feel that all of us can relate to on an existential level of just feeling like you're less relevant by the day um, and the little kid being on uh, maybe based on Jodie Foster is in a pop culture glossary in the New York Times. Um, but you. they they didn't elaborate. They just say she may be inspired by Jodie Foster, I guess, on Gunsmoke and other TV series as a child in that era. 
seems like a bit of an insufferable child in terms of just being <laughs> very straight laced, uh, but very well acted and a lot less annoying than the girl from Pet Cemetery. So if we were ranking the <laughs> the movie kids that we discuss here, I feel like should yeah. be high up there. Uh, <laughs> okay, before yeah. though we uh, wrap this up, it's turning out to be a long one, but this is a movie that goes on for three eternities and a half. Yeah, this is a this is <laughs> ten movies. So, yeah. <laughs> there is obviously the cult part of it. We have a long sort of extended scene with Brad Pitt entering uh, the ranch where the uh, the ladies. Are uh, Lena Dunham is, I feel like she, she's very convincing as the sort of lead victim brainwashed lady. Yes, in yeah. the cult, it's it's alarming how how sold I was. I agree. That. Like I I believed it. Like I fully believed it. I fully believed it. Yeah. You know what? I see that for you. I try not to malign uh, Lena Dunham as much as, you know, because I feel like pop culture has massacred her to a sort of oh, yeah. uh, unreasonable level. But this was yeah. very convincing. But yeah, so Brad Pitt goes into the ranch lured in by, um, I don't remember her name. She's Andy McDowell's daughter in real life. And she was the lead oh, in yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Made. Very, very good actress uh, yes. who plays the very young person who Brad Pitt, thankfully, uh rejects uh, sexually in this movie good for you cliff this that's is a mature choice scumbag thing that he does <laughs> it's like, is like demands proof that she's 18 and because she doesn't have it he's like no i'm not going to jail for poontang yeah, like, like the way he puts it is like you know what bro good on you for yeah. your not scumbag decision here yeah, you know what <laughs> <laughs> the motivation might not be necessarily the best. Like, oh, I escaped prison uh, from killing. For like, I killed my wife. My wife because she annoyed me. So, yeah, like, it's not, not gonna great. Be, <laughs> it's not gonna be you that's gonna send me to prison. But you know what? The ends in this case justify <laughs> the means. And uh, yeah, he, but he goes into the ranch and the obvious. And, and that was an actual thing that happened. That the spawn ranch existed. Um, yeah. George Spun existed and his main uh, girl, sort of, uh, Squeaky, played by Dakota Fanning, also existed. And she tried to kill Jared Ford in 1975. Yes, yes. That's a real ass thing. Yeah. Lynette's Which Squeaky Which is several friend. years later. If you think about it, it's actually banana pants. That's like six years later of the yeah. of like this type of situation. That's scares me almost more than this movie does but yeah, yeah. i <laughs> i have to say during this sort of extended ranch sequence it was really terrifying especially before he mm -hmm. kind of goes in it has this really creepy almost texas chainsaw massacre feeling like this part of the movie feels like a horror movie this like, yeah kind of creepy awful kind of place there's a really terrifying shot i'm gonna i'm gonna also just say content warning for animal cruelty oh, here yeah. there's a shot of a rat struggling in a mm. trap that is deeply upsetting like, oh, deeply upsetting we're is. doing horror movie shit here uh and he when he goes in to see bruce stern's character it's 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 spawn himself and i i didn't know the ending of this movie i actually thought that this movie was going to end with sharon tate dying uh Same. sharon tate and her friends Same. dying so like here i am watching this and i'm like oh this is what the movie's going to be like for these scenes 
that like this movie is very pretty loose and funny and and sometimes very poignant again as we we're talking about with, with some of the Rick Dalton stuff but otherwise pretty loose and funny and goofy and you know Austin Powers Roman Polanski dancing around and all this kind of shit is happening and then we're gonna get serious when it comes to the cult like when yeah. it comes to the cult it's gonna be creepy it's gonna be horror it's gonna be terrifying shit that does not happen at the end but we do get it here mm-hmm. and it's very effective yeah. like this feels very effective. It feels like violence could happen at any second. Yeah. Um, which to me, I guess, in my brain, as not someone who ever had to deal with being in a cult, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It, to me, in my I brain, mean, we are all in the cult of capitalism. But I mean, yeah, that's it. True. Wasn't a voluntary choice. That's true. That's true. Anyone. We're all born into this. You know, that's that ain't wrong. Um, in my brain, I've always thought of it as like a complex, abusive relationship. Um, yeah. basically what's kind of going on and that there's always a threat of violence. And sometimes that's as scary as violence itself. And that permeates this whole extended sequence, like this scene. And then what happens next with Brad Pitt beating the shit out of Clem, one of the brainwashed dudes, which yeah. also feels fucked up. Yeah. I don't know, but feels- in a different way, it almost provides, it's supposed to be like comic relief for how horrifying this scene is and how effectively horrifying this scene is. Yeah. But it's also kind of not funny. Because yep, it's nope. kind of like, my bro's going to have real serious brain damage if you beat him that badly. And uh, it- same thing happens when he when he kills the, the, the brainwashed woman at the end, where it's like, yeah. I think it's supposed to be funny, but it's not, because it's, it's like, not- that's that's not even a head anymore. That is that is like that's beyond death at that yeah, point, and it's it, pretty fucked up. It's so, a Tarantino thing to an extent, right? You're like, oh, this wouldn't be a Tarantino movie if we didn't get like at least one extremely graphic, right? Death, death scene. scene. Yeah, but, but yeah, this, I get what you're. This saying. woman's not a Nazi though, which is what makes it a little more difficult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she is a, not a great person. She is going in to kill someone and that does suck yeah but like you said there is this interplay between like all these women were victims too and you know having read you know the book by the woman who was called sneak in the cult like they were well, all they Sweeney. were all sexually abused yeah. yes i'm sorry um that that is that is her name and actually she shows up in the cursed films episode about roman oh, polanski yeah. and about she she herself like actually does show up uh and talks sneak. a little bit snake the yes. person uh, okay no yeah because i think the real I, person yeah i yeah. think the actress i think she's the one that sydney sweeney plays in the movie the gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. girl from yeah. euphoria the blonde girl. yes 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 uh yes making all the connections now but like the real life person mm-hmm. her her book that she had written you know, they, these women were all sexually abused by they were all to- made to yeah. have group sex whether they wanted to or not like all of them were abused. So this is not just like, oh, this person sucks and is a murderer. It's like, yes, but also she also is abused and very young. And some things are going on here where this is a little bit more complicated than, you know, a man who killed his wife because she was annoying him. <laughs> like, right. On that level. Right. Yeah. And that's what's going on in that ending scene. Yeah. It's Diane. I think her actual name was Diane. Diane Lake. Lake. Or, yep. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yeah, this is, to me, is kind of like, it's a very complicated thing to discuss, right? Because sure. I, I, I was just saying, saying it now, like, oh, we're all in the cult of capitalism, but we didn't voluntarily enter it. But then again... That's true, yeah. 
people don't voluntarily enter cults and that's a, a kind of like a throwaway phrase if you listen to enough things about cults but like nobody joins a cult thinking it's a cult you join something else and then yes. it becomes a cult and in the Manson case and people like the hippies and I think that's why I was particularly uncomfortable with the Brad Pitt scene like you said uh, like bashing the guys uh like just kicking the guy's face and body or whatever like just destroying the yeah. guy it really felt like a cowboy versus hippies thing. And, yes. you know, and people like hippies were particularly vulnerable because a lot of the people who want to change the world, who don't conform necessarily to societal expectations, end up exactly being the people who end up in cults. Uh, Jonestown, for instance, the most tragic example of them all, like, there was a lot of elements of charity, of socialism, and of like a lot of Jim Jones's mission was going against segregation. Was you yeah. know so the message so a lot of good people end up in these situations not because they're stupid or uh, you know, but because the situation unfolds in a way that we all like to think that we are immune to this. Like I would never end up in a cult and. I'm sure I won't go too deep into this because I'm sure we're going to sure. talk a lot about this during the month in all the other examples. Uh, but in the Manson case, like it's especially complicated because these uh, people ended up committing a horrible, horrible crime. And of course, you have to hold people accountable. They killed others and they killed other women, including a pregnant woman in Sharon Tate. So of course yeah. you have to weigh in that they were perpetrators, but it's really hard not to think of them, of course, as victims as well of Charles Manson. Charles Manson was like a shitty, shitty human. He was in jail a bunch of times for petty crime. He tried to be a musician, didn't work out for him. Like just a terrible, like, failed person in the real horrible world. Horrible racist as racist well. Racist as fuck, like, obviously. Horrific horrible. racist. Yeah. We just recycle these, like, sort of semi-spiritual ideas, but who happen to be very charismatic and engaging. And, you know, uh, I read this really good uh, uh, piece on Vox by Constance Grady, kind of talking about the, the Manson girls, uh, and I say this with quotes, and how they fit into the narrative that was formed after the, the murders. And, and, you know, he talked about specifically targeting young women because they were more vulnerable uh, yeah. to his advances. And like you said, they were abused in other ways. So it's kind of like, to me, thinking about these things, and again, particularly in this case, it's very interesting. There's so many layers to this, because even, there, even when the women weren't treated as heartless monsters, uh, they were the narrative later turned into them being these pawns, Right. Yeah. These, yeah. These empty little things that got, you know, their little empty brains were filled with with Minson's ideas. And that's what happened. Even that you kind of take away their humanity, too. And as the um, as Grady put it in the article, that narrative is, I quote, mostly interested in the titillating idea of fanciful young girls who had been brainwashed by a demon into doing absolutely anything. The girls were still important, mostly as living props who prove Manson's power. And that's what happened, right? Everybody involved in these crimes ended up, it, everybody ended up being a prop in the narrative of Charles Manson. Yeah. 
So that's also so particularly perverse and cruel. So you have to think about it this way. And that's why, you know, of course, again, they, there are a lot of people who go into horrible cults and suffer horrible abuse and that they don't, don't end up being murderers. So it's like, yeah, you have to, to hold, uh, these, these people, uh, mostly women, but of course there was tax, for instance, men too. Yeah, there were men too. Yeah. You have to hold them accountable for the actions that they carried out, but you can also hold the reality that they were victims as well, right? Of a person who was really able to twist their minds, not just, but, but not just that. It's not as simple as that. When we talk about brainwashing, it's not just like a person who hypnotizes you and implants concepts on your brain. This is a person who kind of is able to alter through a lot of mechanisms, your very concept of reality. Yeah. So there's a lot that goes into it and a lot that made me kind of uneasy about the particularly the particular brutality of the end that's supposed to be this humorous moment. Uh, And also this sort of tale of revenge, again, as we've discussed, that is very present on Tarantino's movies, right? Like, oh, this like this didn't happen in real life, but like we got our pop culture revenge on the Manson murderers, but it also ratted this guy who had also killed his wife and who took pride of being this wild cowboy, killing a bunch of hippies who at that point had broken into a house. Hadn't killed anyone. So right. I don't know. You know, like to me, that's just, ugh, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah, I'm completely with you. I mean, the part of this that really gets to me is the fact that like what, what someone like Manson does, what a cult leader can do is like prey on people's weaknesses and also almost sort of like glitch or hijack people's social programming. Mm-hmm. Like we're all very social animals, right? Yeah. We all live, you know, amongst other people. And even if we don't live, you know, directly with other people, everything about our life, we work with other people, we have social connections to other people, we have family units, we have, you know, even the most isolated people in the world typically are still conversing with other people all the time, right? True isolation is a torture, you know, method. Yep, it is. And so whether they fully even understand the mechanics of it or not, a cult leader creates like you said a new reality for someone Mm -hmm. and you or I or anyone any sane person you know who has like is an adult with their full faculties you know that's been raised and and what with whatever values and whatever education whatever they have like any of us given the right set of circumstances could be made to feel as if reality is different yeah and that you have to go kill someone like that's actually a, a perfectly, like, that is a possible thing that could happen. Yeah. And just the fact that that's possible. Look, I have OCD, so of course I think like, oh yeah, the fact that that's possible means everybody's a murderer. Or not. <laughs> I don't actually think that. I'm just saying like OCD brain goes there all the time. It always goes to like the most extreme, terrible thing. So that's mm-hmm. just like how my brain works. Um, I suppose I'm, I'm giving you a peek into my brain. But just the fact that all humans could do this like could be victim to this is terrifying to me. And maybe that's part of what creates the allure of a cult, you know, a piece about cults. Uh, Maybe it's part of what creates the allure, even about like documentary things about real life cults and things like that. It's like, Mm -hmm. it is an understanding of and a hijacking of the social mechanisms of humanity for someone's more nefarious purpose. Right. Right. That's like essentially what's going on here. And that's, 
really scary. We're all kind of susceptible to that. We all kind of have the same general hardware in our heads, right? Like no one is immune to that. Like just no one is. It's it's impossible to be immune to that. We all do seek some validation from other human beings. You're absolutely right. And in a way, it's more comforting to think, oh, any of us can be a victim than it is to think any of us could be a perpetrator. Yeah, I'm not of course. Saying, right? Yeah. Like that's a much yes. darker reality. And it's like, I'm not saying, again, we're not saying that, oh, all of us are potential murderers. Right, all of right. us in the hands of Charles Manson could be murderers. That's not true, especially in um, Maya Hawke's character in the movie. She was a real life person who didn't commit the murders and who later testified against them in trial. So, and I'm sure she suffered the abuse and the manipulation and everything else. So it's like, we're not saying that, but it's a, there is an uncomfortable exercise in empathy uh, to be made here. Incredibly uncomfortable because again, this is a horrible murder. Um, The terrible crime was committed. Uh, And yeah, like there's no discounting that or the pain that this caused to so many families, but there is a very uncomfortable exercise of em- in empathy to be made there. And that yeah. again, to me is why this is, um, this is so interesting. And I like the choice of the movie to just hint at, uh, at Manson, but do show yeah, the girls. I agree. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's impossible. I've said his name several times to discuss this without talking about Minson's name, but it, it is an, a, an interesting exercise to like step away from him too when analyzing this. And again, why I like that Sharon Tate is a central figure in this instead of just having another movie about Charles Manson and the allure right. of Charles Manson and whatever else. But uh, is, is there anything else you would like to discuss before we, we wrap this up? No, I think we did a great job. If I do say so myself, I guess I'm patting myself on the back. I'm patting you on your back, I suppose. I'm like, we're doing great. I mean, if we don't, as as RuPaul would say again, basic bitchness, my contribution to the show. If you can love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else, Danielle? Which I don't know if that's a good saying, because sometimes you need to be loved by someone else before you love yourself. But again, digressions digressions i feel like we could have like five side podcasts around every movie episode maybe a an idea for the future when our fan base and our millionaire um backer decide to really put money into this so we just spend days like doing several podcasts about our random things i mean i'm down for it listen Listen, millionaires, <laughs> please <laughs> call us, you know, <laughs> give us a call. <laughs> we'll up the phone. <laughs> I'm literally not. Dale is busy, but I'm not like warning. <laughs> it will go up to my head. I'll be an asshole. Like the day I'm very rich and famous. I'm just going to like I'm going to be terrible. I'm going to alienate everybody I love. It's going to be my whole art. But you know what? I'm it's a price you have to pay. For fame and fortune. That's right. And I'm willing to pay it. I don't have a lot <laughs> going on for me right now, but again, I digress. <laughs> so I guess that's, that's it that's for a very fruitful discussion of a movie with a lot of uh, of of texts to be debated. And with that, so many. with that, we're gonna move into our final segment of the show, which we call Shelf Life.
and shelf life the part of the show where we decide where this movie belongs in our video store if it's a bona fide staff pick to be displayed proudly in our most exclusive area if it's a middle aisle placement which is totally fine totally cool no shame in that or it's a or if it's a deuce that belongs in our dumpster that smells bad <laughs> and it's damp and they play happy by pharrell all the time so danielle oh, yeah. i just i hate this song listener in case you couldn't tell this and uptown funk by bruno mars you can you can listen to that too in the dumpster it's not 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 a great catalog as a general concept. <laughs> uh, Danielle, where do you put uh, "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood" in our video? I story? think this is like a quintessential good, high, like high in the middle aisle. Yeah, like it's not a personal favorite. I would mm. not call it a personal favorite, and it doesn't feel important in the same way that like "Inglorious Bastards" uh, necessarily did. Mm-hmm. So, like for me, like this is a good movie. A very well done movie. It does a lot of things really well. I clearly was touched by some of it. Mm-hmm. Thought a lot of it was interesting. We had a great discussion about it. Not a favorite, mm-hmm. but definitely very respectable. Respectable high middle aisle for me. I am with you. I'm with you. I feel like the fact that I forgot everything about it in my first watch is like my subconscious <laughs> trying to tell me something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know this is not a staff pick in your heart. Or you would... <laughs> <laughs> or you would remember at least a thing about this. <laughs> Something that uh, <laughs> happened in the movie. Yeah. But again, like you, I appreciate it. I feel like it's a movie that attempts a lot of things and not of them are success not all of them are successful. Sure. But sure. you know, points for trying, I guess. Um and like you said, I feel like Inglorious Bastards has more to say in a way, and it's more historically yeah. important and and I don't know. Uh, this one is still pretty good, though. So I'm with yeah. you. Middle yeah. aisle. Excellent. High I'm happy middle with it. aisle. Love yeah. it. Love it for us. No controversy. <laughs> and I guess yeah. that settles it for this week. As usual, I have to thank my beautiful, amazing, perfect stunt double co-host, <laughs> who's not a killer of wives. No, I don't do that. I don't play that. <laughs> Again, I know we wear many hats, but the murderer hat is one yeah, that not one of I, them. I yeah. would never attribute to you. And for that, I'm thankful. That's like one requirement. <laughs> I have low standards for people. And this is... Please don't be a murderer. Don't be a murderer. Or if, like, have a good motive if you're going to be right, a murderer. Right, like, right. Like... Not this. Not your nagging yeah. wife. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Fair. At home, of course, for listening to us. Thank you to our producer, Paul Chili Pepper Heart Tamayo, <laughs> for all the help in making this show not only not suck, but in our very biased opinion, also kind of rule. We yeah. would love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please send us an email to yltsi at fanbyte.com. You can send us your reviews. You can send us your recommendations, your questions, any general feedback, and maybe we'll even read it on the show. Uh, We'd really appreciate it. And if you like the work we do and want to show us some support, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. That really goes a long way in helping us out. We will be back here next week still again with our wonderful theme. Join us June you can find us here again next week you can find links to our other podcasts our discord and our socials in the show notes see you again 
very, very soon. But until then, you'll love to see it. Behind the green door. <laughs> Sorry.